Hello you and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today we're talking about Diner and we're talking about it with our great friend, Laura Littman. I'm one of your hosts, Alex Steed, and I will soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall. Diner is a 1982 American comedy drama film written and directed by Barry Levinson. It is Levinson's screen directing debut. It stars Steve Gutenberg, Daniel Stern, Mickey Rourke, Paul Reiser, Kevin Bacon, Timothy Daly, and Ellen Barkin. The film follows a close-knit circle of friends who reunite at a Baltimore diner when one of them prepares to get married. Laura Lippman has been on the show several times before. We love her. She is a friend of ours. She is a New York Times bestselling author. She's written like a thousand books, uh, including recently Prom Mom, which has a Sarah Marshall connection. We'll talk about that in this very episode. I'm going to give some more book recommendations a little bit later on, but somebody asked for me to uh, recommend more books because I, I tend to read a good deal. And Prom Mom is one of the books that I'd recommend. I think I've actually recommended it in an intro before, but check out Prom Mom by Laura Lippman. Hey, uh, we, you are good. Uh, we're going to be at San Francisco SF Sketchfest in early February. If you want to see us do the thing on stage with our great friend Chelsea Weber-Smith, you can do that. There'll be a link for more information in the show notes. Hopefully you'll come check us out because we would love to see your faces and do this whole thing with you in San Francisco. You're wrong about it's going to be there too. Uh, yeah, We'll have information to those things in the show notes. Please come and see us. I'm so glad we're covering Diner. It's fascinating as holiday movies go because it's not really a holiday movie, but it's a holiday season movie. It, it kicks off on Christmas. It ends uh, New Year's, kind of like the movie Go, which and the more I think about it feels like an homage in some ways to the movie Diner. And it's great because it happens in between the holidays. It touches on them both as well. More than half of our primary characters are Jewish, which is uh, fantastic as well. So we kind of get this snapshot of the holiday season with kind of all of these different friends uh, from various backgrounds uh, hanging. We get a really great wedding at the end and it's holiday season without being an explicitly Christmas movie. And I love that. It feels perfect for the kinds of things that we love talking about. Happy Hanukkah to everyone who celebrates. It is, uh, it's happening. It's happening right now. Happy Hanukkah. Thanks for bringing us into your celebration by listening to our conversation about Diner. It's perfect. I hope that you're having a great time out there. Speaking of the holiday season, uh, this is a time when it can become very easy to forget because of the weight of the anxieties, the weight of the world, the weight of whatever, feeling extra on our shoulders during this time of year. You know, it can it can feel heavy or it can feel scattered. It can feel chaotic, whatever. But don't forget that you, my friend, are good. Thank you for being here. We appreciate you. We're glad that you're a part of this whole thing with us. And speaking of appreciation, thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. We are able to make this show possible with your support. Thanks so much. We appreciate it. We're able to do this thing that we love, that we think is important, uh, that we get to form friendships and community around. We get to do it all because a number of you give a handful of dollars every month, and that's beautiful. And in exchange... For those dollars, you get bonus episodes. We have a second half 
of our exploration of and just like that coming up uh it's coming up actually right around diner time in between christmas and new year so it's a perfectly timed announcement for this very episode which is about you know the taint of the holiday season <laughs> the in-between space of the holiday season we had that conversation with miranda zickler uh it was so fun you'll get you'll get a lot in that conversation even if you're not a fan of and just like that you'll get a lot we we have a whole script reading of fan fiction in it it's fun you're gonna have a good time so thank you so much for supporting us on apple podcast subscriptions and patreon we are able to do this because of you and we appreciate you thank you uh quick notes about the episode uh one uh we talk about misogyny throughout we talk about misogyny in practice. We talk about an assault that's passed off as a joke. We talk about well, women not being uh, seen with full agency. It happens throughout this whole episode because it ties to things that are represented on screen. And I just want to give you a heads up about that. Just know that that's coming. I think this is the first movie that we have watched that Sarah's just like, I don't, I don't like it very much. <laughs> And but we explore why, which I think is really uh, awesome. And it was great to do that with Laura. Really, a, this is a really fun and unique conversation. And I'm excited to share it with you. And the other thing you should know, and it relates in part to Laura's book, Prom Mom, but we mentioned uh, dead babies and we mentioned a couple of times. We don't go into grisly details at all, but just know that that is something that is going to come up in this episode and has just come up by way of uh, this warning. So know that that is on the way. Some books that I liked this year because a request has been made that I uh, talk about that. Of course, Jamie Loftus's Raw Dog. If you listen to the show and you read books and you have not read Jamie's book Raw Dog, that feels, uh, that feels wrong. <laughs> you should check it out. It's about hot dogs and socialism. You should check out Malcolm Harris's book Palo Alto, which is a great history of California in a lot of ways. It's a how we got to the dot-com movement in the hundreds of years that preceded that. It's a critique of capitalism. It itself is socialist -y. Very well worth the read. You should check out Naomi Klein's Doppelganger. It speaks to a lot, including conversations about what is presently going on in uh, Israel and Palestine. And it preceded sort of our current moment, obviously, because it was written some time ago. It's well worth reading and checking out. And I really like Klein's work. It's also just about how weird our present political social moment is with regard to the quote truth, uh, well worth the read. And then personally, right now, I'm reading a book called In the Country of Country, A Journey to the Roots of American Music by Nicholas Dodoff. Kind of slowly going through this because it is uh, for a project that I'm working on that I will announce to you at some point in the near future uh, that some of you may be interested in. So those are books that I would recommend. I just saw that our great friend and repeat guest and hopefully future repeat guest, Josh Gondelman, uh, has called for ceasefire. If you're looking for actions around that call, uh, I have been involved with ones with uh, Jewish Voice for Peace, which is for uh, Jewish community members and allies. And I think that's it for this week's introduction to this conversation about Diner. We're going to do a quick ad real fast. And then uh, after that, we are going to talk about Diner. We're going to talk about 1950s Baltimore, Diner culture, boys who love records, boys who don't know how to talk to women. We're going back to Baltimore with the great Laura Lippman. All right, let's do this. 
indulge in the timeless pleasure of assembling Ravensburger's extraordinary jigsaw puzzles. Ravensburger's premium quality puzzles are crafted with meticulous attention to detail. Ravensburger's puzzles have become an integral part of families' lives across generations. Share the joy of puzzling with family and friends, knowing that your cherished puzzles will stand the test of time. Enjoy a mindful moment and immerse yourself in a world of captivating colors, stunning imagery, and intricate designs that will delight people of all ages. Regardless of your preference or skill level, you'll find a jigsaw puzzle that suits you perfectly thanks to the wide range of imagery, themes, and piece counts available. Start small! and work your way up to over 40,000 pieces. Are you up for the challenge? Shop Ravensburger on Amazon today. 40,000 pieces, that's a lot of pieces. I have the ADHD. I have to start small. <laughs> Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed, or as they say in Baltimore, it's the Corny Collins show. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen any movies lately that tragically underutilize Paul Reiser until the credits? All of them. <laughs> <laughs> Aliens, yes, I have seen Aliens. And also Diner, which is a movie I have been meaning to watch for like over 20 years. And I first heard of this movie. I wonder how many other people share this experience from an episode of Friends where Rachel goes out with a, a date to try and get her mind off Ross, who she's just realized she has feelings for after he's come back from China and the like, I think, first season finale with his new girlfriend. And she gets really drunk on this date and leaves Ross a voicemail being like, I am over you. And her date is like, well, I've just been spending the last two hours playing the movie Diner in my head. <laughs> That's, yeah, I bet that there is a sizable chunk of people who know Diner by way of that. Sarah, why are we engaging this classic 1982 Barry Levinson film? We're talking about Diner because it is a Christmas movie uh, and also kind of a movie that takes place in the wonderful, horrible trough between Christmas and New Year's, <laughs> which is made more wonderful and horrible when you're like 22 years old. And we're talking about it with Laura Lippman, the Duchess of Baltimore, the Queen of Maryland. <laughs> Welcome, subjects. Hello. Aww. It's so good to have you back, Laura. It's been a million years. Yeah. It's been too long. I miss you guys. We miss you. It was exactly this time last year. Was it? What did we talk about last year? While you were sleeping. Yes. Oh, my God. You're our Christmas girl. That's so nice. I know. I'm turning into a holiday girl. And... I, we don't normally talk about Diner as a Christmas movie, but it starts on the night of Christmas and it goes through New Year's Eve. So how is it not? I love it. Well, Laura, what what are some things that people should know about you? Um, people should know that I'm a crime novelist who grew up in Baltimore and I'm going to try so hard during this discussion not to go crazy Baltimore pedantic. No, that's what I want. That's what we're here for. <laughs> that's a danger with Diner. And... This is my hometown. It has been since I was a first grader. I've lived in other places. I went away to college. I've lived a little bit in New Orleans. Oh, I lived in Texas in my 20s. But Baltimore's home. I love it very much. It is the kind of place where when you tell people you love Baltimore, 
they often need more information. They're like, why? <laughs> but I think that's part of why I love it. It's really, there's some new comic. I've already forgotten his name. He did a Netflix special and he's like, his thing is that he's very good looking, this new comic. Matt Reif. Yeah. Hmm. And he began with some Baltimore bashing. Oof. And also he beca- he combined Baltimore bashing with a joke. I'm putting my little quote fingers up about domestic violence. And it was like, it was great because everybody in Baltimore was all mad and storming onto social media about, you can't talk about Baltimore like that. You're just another white boy looking to have, you know, cred. So I like the fact that the people who live here are, are very defensive of it and love it very much. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I've, I've, we were just talking about this, but Laura has a book out called Prom Mom. I read it a couple months ago. I fucking love it. Uh, it has a, a Sarah Marshall connection. Uh, what What is that connection, Laura? Uh, Sarah inspired it. Sarah on um, You're Wrong About, when they talked about this, and it's happened more than once. In, in, mm-hmm. in that case, Sarah was talking about two particular instances of young women giving birth kind of proximate to dances. And this is something that has happened in terms of young women giving birth. It's happened so many times in our culture that we don't even talk about it. And, but what inspired prom mom was that Sarah was the first person. She sort of really put the idea in my head that no, it is entirely plausible for an otherwise smart, sane teenage girl to be in complete denial about a pregnancy to the point that they could give birth without ever having admitted to themselves that they were pregnant. And I really wanted to explore that idea. I started working on the book before the rollback of Roe, you know, which was an unfortunate coincidence. I would much prefer that the book be less timely. Mm. But um, yeah, that was the connection. I really wanted to think about, well, what if that was you? And what if it was 30 years later and it's COVID's just starting and you have a second chance, but you also are still somewhat obsessed with the boy who was your date that night. Mm. Laura, I think my brain has not found a way to metabolize <laughs> there being a connection between something I talked about in the closet in my high school bedroom <laughs> and something you made into a novel. And so I'm just going to keep being in denial about it until we can have lunch. So we should do that soon. <laughs> One day. Yes. Um, I am excited to talk and get into diner. I've also spent the past 24 hours poking around in like diner U.S. history. I'm excited. This is, a, mm. is going to be a conversation I'm excited for. But before we get there uh, or at or or the introduction to getting there, Sarah Marshall, can you tell our dear listeners what diner is about? In a way. <laughs> <laughs> It's a vignette bag. We love it. Yes, it's it's vignettes. And it's so Diner. I had this like Diner is one of those movies that I had a fairly specific idea of what I thought it was about Mm. that was completely inaccurate. (laughs) I was convinced for some reason that Diner was a movie that was extremely like a play and that we needed to get all our main characters to this diner. And then once they turned up there in the first few minutes, they would just stay there for the entire movie. And the whole movie would take place in this one diner. And it would be these like six guys and a pressure cooker and things would escalate and somebody would probably get stabbed or something. <laughs> and it's not that. It's the diner is sort of I would I would like to talk about why diner is the title and sort of what diners represent here. But basically, I'm going to list not the guys names because their names are beautiful poems that I don't remember. But the actors, none of whom were particularly known at the time and who became known through being in this movie. 
Yeah. So we have who are our guys in their baggage at the start of this movie? We have Kevin Bacon, who's a hyperactive dick, I would say. Baby, baby, Mickey Rourke. Oh, this is his time. I mean, he's 30, but he's a baby, baby, baby. This and the Pope of Greenwich Village made me want to fuck Mickey Rourke for the rest of my life. Oh, my God. Don't we all? (laughs) (laughs) It's beautiful. He's very special. He's a very special guy who's just made a $2,000 bet on, a, I think, a football game. And Alex, you pointed out that $2,000 is worth how much in today's dollars in 1959? Just shy of $25,000. And this man works in a salon. It, and it's going to pay it off in construction? I was like, ugh. Different times. Bad situation here. We have um, Daniel Stern, who's just gotten married to Ellen Barkin, one of the most mouthwatering women wow. of the late 20th century wow, and wow, cannot wow. stop complaining about it. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> we have Steve Gutenberg, who's on the cusp of getting married, but who is making his fiance take an intentionally impossible to pass football quiz before he will marry her. <laughs> and there's a joke about how at least he didn't want to decorate the wedding in Steelers colors. <laughs> As a person whose parent, whose mom got remarried when I was 22 or 23, and she got married to my stepfather, Steve, and I had a fascinating relationship with Steve until he passed, they had their wedding colors be Michigan State themed. So this really hit close to home. <laughs> I guess I, you know, I'm, uh, I, whatever makes people happy. Um <laughs> It's very diplomatic, Sarah. (laughs) I mean, weddings are very personal, and I guess maybe the more you cater to the personal tastes of both the people getting married, the better. Yes. Both of the people being the important caveat. Yes, that's the the key there. And the Colts, he's decorating the wedding in Colts colors. And are they, they're in Indianapolis now? Were they in Baltimore in the 50s? They were in Baltimore until the early 1980s. Oh my God. When their owner, who is loathed in Baltimore to this day, used Mayflower moving vans to move them in the middle of the night to Indianapolis, and diehard Baltimoreans still don't use Mayflower moving vans. Wow. wow. And Robert Ersay remains one of the most loathed people in the history of Baltimore. We have the Ravens, the Ravens. I don't actually care about football. I care nothing about it. I'm actually sort of against it. I think it's a weird thing that we do that causes great harm to male bodies, but I do care about, you know, the disrespect of Baltimore. So yeah, the Colts, it's, it's a big deal. Yeah. I feel a lot of love for like the extremely strong feelings and grudges that cities have about things that happened, you know, long before many full grown adults were born. Like these are the things that, that give us an identity and the pettier, the better, not that it's petty, but you know, the like less connected to, real life and death stakes, the better. And then Paul Reiser, I don't really know what his baggage in this movie is. They probably mention it and I was distracted, but he's just kind of just kind of doing his thing. I feel like what's he up to? He's kind of perfect in the way that like, I feel like every friend group has these people who are like driven by something and then just like just a funny guy. (laughs) Yes, that's me and most friend groups. And I'm sure there is pathos, but like you don't necessarily know it. It doesn't come up as often because he's busy mooching rides and getting half sandwiches. And the thing, the only thing I want to mention on top of that 
cast because the cast is so significant. Like the cast is this movie. Mm -hmm. And we have mentioned Ellen Chenoweth, who's a casting director in our broadcast news episode. Mm -hmm. And she is a fabulous casting director. She also uh, was the director, casting director of Terms of Endearment, was an office manager of the the Actors Studio, which gave her proximity to all of this talent. And yeah, this is like, if you look at the movies that she has overseen, like Michael Clayton, No Country for Old Men, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, True Grit, Burn After, oh, a lot of Coen Brothers stuff, uh, clearly. She's one of the greatest. So I just want to shout her out. She's an unseen hero of this movie. Yeah, and this is really a masterpiece and she can pick winners. I found an oral history of Diner that was made on its 40th anniversary. Oh. I think it ran in Entertainment Weekly. And Paul Reiser went with a friend to the audition. He wasn't planning to audition Mm. and they asked him to audition. And he was cast specifically because he was a stand-up comedian and Levinson wanted someone who could improv. Oh. Mm. And a lot of his most memorable stuff in Diner, I think the whole thing about the roast beef sandwich and you have chunks of roast Mm -hmm. beef around your heart, I think that was improvised. (laughs) I love that. So that was definitely his role was to, to sort of amp up the comedic aspects in the script. I love Paul Reiser, and I think many 90s type kids grew up, uh, not as many as I would like, but many of us grew up watching Mad About You. Mm. Oh, yeah. And having that, for me, it certainly was like one of the first images I had of like people who were married and also like liked each other. (laughs) Yes. And that's really my association with him. And I remember listening to it, like, I think some podcast interview with Paul Reiser years ago, I was just in a mood where I was like, I just want to hear Paul Reiser talk about something. And it was him talking about how the writer's room for Mad About You worked and how they had, I probably brought it up on this show before, but I just love the story. They had a rule where like, if they could come up with a joke, but it was like Paul making a joke at Jamie's expense or Jamie making a joke at Paul's expense, they wouldn't use that. And the way he describes it is like, this is a show about people who are on the same team and that when you're married, you know, you are two people who are different from each other, but you are trying Mm -hmm. to understand each other and to pull for each other. And that approach to writing a marriage in a sitcom, like it might seem small, but I was (laughs) thinking yesterday in the car about like, I was like, what was that show I'm thinking of? Was it Yes, Dear? (laughs) Was it According to Jim? Does it matter? Is there a difference? Like these shows we grew up with, where it's generally like the sitcom about the man who's married to an extremely hot woman and hates her and everyone hates each other the whole time. And Mad About You was like this little, really felt like an oasis. Yeah, that's so true, sir. And like, I don't think about the ways that those imprinted on me, but yeah, to your point, like the way that marriage, I think can be a lot of the time in real life and the way that it's represented in pop culture and those things feed each other is like, there are two archetypes they learn to ex- coexist and there's some calamity or whatever. Yeah. The slob and the bitch. It, yeah, exactly. And like, really, like, it's only going to work or bear fruit if you continue to try to figure out how to, like, make space for each other and, you know, keep up with the the ongoing growth that is inevitable. Yeah. And so to round out our cast, our last guy is Tim Daly. Oh, yeah. Who has come back home from school, I guess. And uh, I think is is kind of our audience proxy character because he's getting caught up on what everybody's doing with their life. And we just watch these guys have little misadventures and get through that week of their lives. And it's it's the time when like it feels like a very amphibious period. I uh, assume they're kind of, you know, they're all in kind of their early 20s. 
the teenage years are over. They're looking at guys who are like a couple years younger than them and saying like, ah, these kids today. But they're not grown up yet either. Kevin Bacon gets really drunk and crawls into the manger in a nativity scene. (laughs) We have a, a scene where, you know, Daniel Stern screams at Ellen Barkin about organizing his records wrong. And then she goes and hangs out with her old flame, Mickey Rourke. And she's like, did you care about me? And not just because we had sex. And he's like, you were really great at sex. One of the best. And she's like, thanks. I feel better now. And you're like, okay. (laughs) And then eventually Steve Gutenberg does walk the plank and get married. And there's this banner at the wedding about like celebrating the marriage and also the beginning of the 60s. And I was like, oh, God, it's the beginning of the 60s. This movie is about like the last week of the 1950s. And yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's it's a movie that just sort of takes its time wandering around town. And I really enjoy that. And also, I do not like these guys. I think they suck. <laughs> I love that so much. This movie, kind of famously, Quentin Tarantino um, looked to this movie in a big way and that informed Reservoir Dogs and then and then bits of Pulp Fiction. Like any talky movie that Miramax put out in the 90s, I feel like owes yeah. so much to this movie. This movie owes... They should all send $5 to Barry Levinson. They should. Beautiful Girls owes a lot to this movie. Oh God, Beautiful Girls. Dazed and Confused owes a lot to this movie. Although all of those movies have... I think I do think that there are, yeah, I I kind of agree with the likability factor of of a lot of these guys, and I'm excited to talk about sort of like who they are and what they represent. But the other the other thing that we were texting about is, I don't know, I don't have a deep knowledge of the history of of like Jews on film in American cinema, but like this movie, half if not more than half of the guys are Jewish. The wedding at the end is Jewish, and it feels like it has Jewish characters on film without, without, as I said to Sarah, it being like a quote, like culture picture. Like it's not, this is a slice of life. It's just is a thing about these guys. And that feels moderately new at this time in American cinema. Yeah. I was counting up. So the Mickey Rourke, Daniel Stern, Paul Reiser, and Steve Gutenberg are all playing Jewish characters. Yeah. So Tim Daly and Fenwick, uh, Kevin Bacon, who plays Fenwick, are are definitely not right. Right. So that's sort of the and the idea is that this is this would have been Northwest Baltimore at that time. They all went to far, these. These are all based on real people. Hmm. All of the diner guys and one of the original diner guys is in the movie, and that is there's a scene where someone's selling clothing out of the trunk of the car outside the diner. Oh yeah. His name is um, Howard Chip Silverman and Chip Silverman was one of the diner guys and wrote a book about it. Hmm. Although it did, did seem to me at some point that being a diner guy was something that like dozens of men from a certain age in Baltimore were claiming to be. And I'm not, and there was a, there was a documentary made that I couldn't find called the original diner guys where Levinson did come back and talk to his friends. But the two I know for sure are Chip Silverman, who appears in the film, and Boogie, the Mickey Rourke character, was based on a guy who was known as Boogie Wineglass. And he <laughs> created... <laughs> Could I make that up? Um, there used to be this clothing store on malls called Merry-Go-Round. That was yes, the creation totally. of Boogie Wineglass. And wow. he became a very rich man by starting Merry-Go-Round. You can tell Boogie, given some time, and if he doesn't get his legs broken, is going to go on and start some stuff. Oh, yeah. He's blossoming. (laughs) He's getting ready for his first trial bankruptcies before he's able to launch something good. Where do we start, Laura? Why? uh, Tell us about your relationship with this movie and this movie's relationship with Baltimore. 
So I saw this movie when it came out in 1982 when I was living in Waco, Texas. And I just fell in love with it. And I don't even think the Baltimore stuff was quite as important because at the time I wouldn't have known most of the Baltimore lore. And I'm definitely from a subsequent generation by maybe this is about guys who graduated high school in the fifties and then graduated high school into the late seventies. But it was just such a funny talky movie and it became kind of famous because Pauline Kael rescued it. Mm. Hmm. Studios didn't want to release this movie. Hmm. And she saw it in New York and wrote such a rave that they were kind of obligated to release it after that. Hmm. And Levinson, in an interview, said that he thinks the thing that saved it was that the studio couldn't recut it into the movie that they wanted it to be. Right. Huh. I love that. <laughs> You're like, it's vignettes. It, nothing happens. What's going on here? Why would anyone watch this movie? And again, you've already talked about the casting. I think at this point, Stern has already made Breaking Away. Yeah. And we've definitely seen Mickey Rourke in um, Body Heat. I don't remember. that. Uh, I think Pope of Greenwich Village is later. But we've seen him in Body Heat. He has that little scene-stealer part as the arsonist. Hmm. Here's the thing. I, yeah, I showed you all my notes. You can tell how many people are getting their first break on screen if you look at their teeth. Like, <laughs> all of these teeth are going to be fixed. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah. So, you know, you just have this wonderful young cast. And again, it felt so weirdly relatable, even though it was happening 20 years earlier. Because guys didn't change that much between 1960 and 1980. And we still all knew the guy who would yell at his girlfriend over his record collection. And, you know, we knew the the, the anger. Because, you know, the character that Tim Daly plays, he's got a lot of rage balled up inside. You know, he's still mm. going around punching out people from a grudge from grade school. Yeah, I, it, it just felt, I don't know, it, it's hard. I don't understand people who don't love this movie, although I do understand that there are things in it that seem so not funny now. Like, I get that the idea of sticking your penis in a popcorn box so your date will touch it and you can collect a bet. Yeah. That's not a joke we would tell in modern times. Totally. Absolutely. And it, it happens for so long. And also, as a as a person who has a penis... I was so worried about him getting salt in his in his uh, pee hole. He's young; he'll bounce back. He's gonna be fine. There, there's that piece, but also this movie's regard for like the interiority of women not great until later. The one piece of like actionable wisdom Tim Daly gets is from a dancer at the strip club, <laughs> which I like as a choice. What is the wisdom that she gives him? She's like, "Are you in love?" And he said, "Or what? Are you married?" He said, "Well, I'm in love. I'm not married. It's trouble, whatever." And she said, "Does she know it?" And he said, "Yeah, I've told her." And she says. You told her you haven't shown her. Hmm. And I yeah. thought that that was like such an incredible, and it's the, I would argue with the exception of some of the great mom stuff in here, it's the only time any of the women show much beyond like insecurity or gullibility. Or not wanting to touch someone's dick necessarily, but then being very, to me, the Mickey Rourke, the penis in the popcorn box thing. That's not the part that bothers me. It's the part where he talks her and yes. being like, well, I just had to, yeah. you know, it was hurting. I have such a hard on from sitting next to you. I had to let it out. It gets slipped into the popcorn box. And she's like, oh, OK. And I was just like, girl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there is like, 
I was I've been kind of thinking about this this past week because I was doing a project for this past year where I do a drawing for every episode of Sex in the City <laughs> and I finished it. It oh, was emotional. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So it's been a journey. I'm using shadow now. So that's really fun. And then I was like, what am I going to do with my life? And then I was like, I'm going to do a drawing for every minute of The Godfather. Amazing. Oh, now I understand. <laughs> you understand why I was sending you all those weird sketches of uh, Clemenza. But yeah, and that's, you know, and having started that project recently, like The Godfather is a movie that I really love and I find interesting as as a thing to sort of you know, I feel like I have encountered through talking about The Godfather publicly, like some undercurrent of men, I think, feeling sad that it, it doesn't just get to be their thing and that women are capable of understanding it, too. And also, you know, the thing of like explaining my interest in it to other women where I'm like, you know, this movie takes zero interest in women. And I can accept that because it's not pretending to do it. And because women sort of do exist as like the casualties of the choices that you make in your life. And, and that's what they get to represent. Um, and that that's in that context enough for me, while it is also like very like sadly comical that Mama Corleone has no first name in the first movie. I think they like give her a name later, I think. But in the credits, she's credited as Mama. Oh, man. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's not great. But that this movie feels like it, it feels ickier to me because it's so much about the sort of adolescent male viewpoint and, you know, kind of male viewpoint generally in America that's so well represented in, in media, you know, through to today where like, it's not just that we're uninterested in women, it's that they are no man's land and we must go over the top and we must conquer them. And it, it's so much about like, how do I trick her into touching my thing? How do I <laughs> convince her to come back into the theater? How do I trick my friends into thinking that I had sex with this girl by bringing another girl up in a wig? And just this thing of like, relations are not going to improve while you keep thinking of us as like, you know, land in France that you have to conquer to continue this World War One metaphor I've chosen. <laughs> Diner takes it to the point where... If the movie is about anything, which it's really not, but it is about this wedding that's supposed to happen on Christmas Eve, assuming that the Steve Gutenberg character's fiance can pass this football test, which was based on a true story. Oh, boy. Barry Levinson had a cousin who did this. And I'm not surprised at all that that's a true story. One of the movie's interesting choices in listening to Sarah talk about, you know, the queasiness of honoring this worldview in which women just have no place yeah. is that we literally never see the bride-to-be of Steve Gutenberg. We see her from the yeah. back. We hear her voice when she's taking the football quiz, but she's not visible. She's like Maris Crane. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think, is it Gutenberg who pokes at the two little figures on top of the cake, almost as if he can't believe he's one of them. Oh my God, I think so, yes. <laughs> yeah, and there's that moment. So it's not something that we want to honor or celebrate, but it is kind of factual. Well, that's the thing. And it feels extremely honest. And I think it's, and I'm like, you know, where do you land when you're like, I'm really grossed out by this, but I'm being grossed out by history. Like the point is that this did happen. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think that Levinson, like what what is portrayed really well in this is like, this is like a movie about a bunch of heterosexual men who are in love with each other and like the women they kind of destroy along the way. Mm. But like, I think that like what is represented very well is like Ellen Barkin's primary character for every male in this, which I think is is actually great and shows a, a pretty incredible amount of self-awareness on Barry Levinson's part. Is she's just like, do you like me? Mm-hmm. Did you like me? Like yeah. based on all of your behavior, I can't tell if you like me. Yeah. I think I would have a much harder time with all of the similar ickiness I felt in revisiting if that wasn't in there. And I don't think it like justifies it because I but I think it's like it's like an actual like response to like someone living like there's that scene where Tim Daly punches the guy and we find mm-hmm. out that he punches the guy because of this grudge from the 11th grade, as as Laura had talked about earlier. And Barkin asked who the guy was seven times nobody answers her and then eventually when there she's in the car with with stern he finally is able to answer because the guys aren't there like the guys are the number one priority and like when they're gone like she's engaged and then when she's hmm. engaged it's like a it's about like quizzes about who's on b side of a record <laughs> yeah and this is really my obsession with newsies as an adolescent part of it like it you know so much went into that but part of it was like Guys don't want me around, so I guess have to have this fantasy life of being a guy, and then they'll include me. Right. So yes, yeah, right. so let's just jump. Let's just go straight at homoeroticism. Yes. Yes, please. please. Always. <laughs> but I'm gonna. I'm actually. I'm gonna come at it roundabout, which is so you know. There's a character that wanders through this film reciting the entire screenplay yes. of Sweet Smell of Success. Yeah, the gay guy. I love that kid. <laughs> yeah. And so I love it too. The art kid. <laughs> I would say like, so a couple of years after Diner came out, it was like when people were first getting VCRs and I finally sat down and watched Sweet Smell of Success with my father. Hmm. So it was his favorite movie of all time and he loved it. And he's like, what did you think? I was like, it's terrific. But I didn't understand that it was so much about this homoerotic bond between Burt Lancaster and, uh, <laughs> sorry, I just, and Tony Curtis. And my dad just freaked oh. out. My dad's like, what are you talking about? What? You? And it's like, it's so clear to me. Yeah. So you have this character wandering through the movie, reciting dialogue about this intense, charged relationship between two men who are actually in an incredible power dynamic struggle. But it's it's actually I wish Diner was a little more homoerotic. I wish the guys yeah. were like more aware that they have gotten like they're staying up late at night with the guys. Mm-hmm. And of course, only one of them is going home to a wife at this point, although soon it's going to be the Gutenberg character, too. But it's like the intimacy. They're saving all of their best selves for any Eddie, even the Gutenberg character even says that he's like. You talk to a girl, you don't have to talk to girls. You've got the guys at the diner. (laughs) So it's not clear what Eddie Gutenberg thinks women are for because we find out he's never actually had sex. Yeah. What if he doesn't turn out to like it? You know, (laughs) hasn't thought of that, has he? (laughs) The thing I didn't realize until again, like poking around in diner history, LOL, is women weren't allowed at diners before the end of the Second World War. Oh, wow. There was just like a kind of an expect, like a social and cultural expectation that that wasn't going to happen. This was a place for working class men, largely immigrants or children of immigrants, 
like laborers. Like that's where this was. It, it was a rough place. That's ultimately what it was for. So like by the time 59 comes around, women have been at diners like at most for not even 15 years. So it's like it's like kind of perfect that the place that they congregate represents this cultural moment where like it's very new that they're even going to be in there. And these guys are very new to the idea that women have like any modicum of agency. And they're having a very difficult time accepting that represented by the fact that Eddie still orders his mom for what kind of like food he wants her to make. Make me a fried bologna sandwich. Mm-hmm. It's not that not that much to ask. <laughs> not much to ask. I was thinking about this. I mean, this. I mean, again, this was something that really happened. There was a diner. It was in the suburbs. It was called the Hilltop Diner. I imagine that this tradition evolved in part because girls in high school in the 1950s had curfews. Yeah, and maybe mm. the boys didn't. So you drop your date off at the end of the night, then you can go to the diner and hang out with the guys. I'm just assuming that's how that happened or else they're not dating at all. And they're just hanging out at the diner because they can't find anyone to go out with them. Yeah, I was thinking I'm thinking about Steve Gutenberg essentially getting married so that he can have sex. I was like, boy, we're wondering about, you know, why is marriage on the decline? Why is the divorce rate up? And like, let's be honest, marriage took a major hit when you stopped having to do it in order to have sex. Sure. Which like, you know, was a rule that never had 100 percent rate of being followed, but definitely declined after the 1950s. And, you know, I always think of there's this American Masters about Billie Jean King where she's like, yeah, I got married so I could have sex. I was curious about sex, you know. And and we're recording this in a week where we've had yet another one of those articles which are like, the men are so lonely, the men are so unhappy, and the men are upset because women don't want to sleep with them if they have reprehensible political views. And, this and it's, is, like, it's like, gee. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. And, just, and this is like, I, I got so mad while watching this, I think specifically at the penis and the popcorn thing, just like, you know, thinking about like how much of your life historically as an adolescent girl is about just having dicks thrust at you mm. out of nowhere and being expected to like deal with that. And, you know, how that can be anywhere between like annoying and extremely traumatic. And I was just like, if these guys at this age are so obsessed with sex and just sticking it in, they should just fuck each other. And I think that there's, you know, such a historical tradition of like young guys doing that and that we should encourage that more, not as a way to take the pressure off of of girls. Exactly. But this idea of like. The guys in this movie, like they love each other. They understand each other. They view sex the same way. They have this sort of actual bond where they know each other. And it feels so strange to position for them this idea where like you have actual relationships with men and then you have to go have sex with people that you do not know or understand. Right. And we get that so beautifully articulated in the scene where... Gutenberg is asking Stern about what marriage is like. And Stern is just straight up like, you have your friends and we all have a good time. We're friends. Good time is friends. And then you get married and you have nothing to talk about. So like there's a handful of things to unpack there. Like, you know, maybe actually inquire about your wife's interests that would be good like there are some things to to remedy there find out what her middle name is find out what yeah totally these are just some things you can do but then there's that really amazing thing that happens at the end of that conversation where gutenberg hears all of that Mm -hmm. and then at the end of it he says but it's great right 
And, yeah. and Stern's yeah. like, yeah. And it's like the lie that we tell ourselves. That's a moment that's going to haunt him for decades. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, it's nice. It's yeah, it'll be good. And you're like, oh, my God, it's not going to be. It's like he's going off to war. Yes. 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 I want to give Gutenberg credit for almost saving a scene, which is and I do love this film, but I have a particular grudge against these movies. Diner was one. Ferris Bueller. I think it all goes back to the Blues Brothers in which the white guys turn out to be the coolest people in the room. Oh, my God. Which, of course, is never true. (laughs) Never, 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 never. So they're in a strip club on Baltimore's block. Baltimore. I drove down it today. It's still there. There's still strip clubs there. I don't have no idea who goes there. And actually, the first stripper we see on stage is Pam Gale, who was a very famous Baltimore stripper whose boyfriend... Um, with someone who ended up running from the law and Levinson would go on to make a movie called Avalon, which is about that character, but about oh, the strip club oh. owner. And in Billy, the Tim Daly character, he's does, the music is too slow. There's, there's a black man playing saxophone and a white guy playing drums. And he's like, pick it up, pick it up. And he runs up and he starts playing the piano. And it is so dangerously close to that awful, I am the white man who's going to teach everyone how to be cool and uninhibited, how to dance, how to live, how to sing. Mm-hmm. Steve Gutenberg absolutely saves this scene <laughs> by being a complete nerd. I know that's not the <laughs> His facial expressions, he's like, my buddy. And it's like, he's so goofy. And then he gets up and he dances and he dances horribly and and it's really wonderful it kind of resets the scene and balances the scene in a way without Gutenberg that scene would be intolerable and he just keep he just pulls it back from being so cringe thanks Goot I really do hate the it's going to take a white guy and a piano for a black guy to really play a saxophone well yeah I, you know, the function that I think that a movie like this plays outside of when it originally came out. Although, no, it's when it originally came out because of when it when it came out, when it represented, you know, I feel like Happy Days and American Graffiti paved the paved the way for this is like and then we would later see it in Dazed and Confused. Just being able to see how your parents might have been or like understanding mm-hmm. your parents friends like movies that show a time and place in a people that could have been your parents or people your parents knew before you came around were doing like a very important job in helping maybe explain where these aliens came from who gave birth to you or or raised you. Yeah, this movie is like dazed and confused, but if everyone had overcoats on. <laughs> it's wow. the, the cold weather dazed and confused. Yeah. I want to know what you guys think about this whole subplot where like Boogie meets this, they like drive out to the oh country my God, and the he like meets this, cruises this girl on a horse. Jane Chisholm. Jane Chisholm is in the Chisholm Trail and he's like, what's that? And then he like, as I guess, kind of some resolution for his character, like turns up at the end on his own fucking horse. <laughs> and dressed as Rocky from the first Rocky movie. God bless. Something that's come to me to talk about during this discussion, and I swear this is influenced by the fact that I spent the fall taking an online course in modern poetry that <laughs> teaches you how to do close reading and then you can't stop doing it on everything. Mm-hmm. I've never really thought about the fact that we learn in this movie that Mickey Rourke and Alan Barkin had sex when they were dating. They don't say it straight up, but it's pretty clear Yeah. when she asked him, did you like me? Not just because of the stuff we did. Do we think 
that Daniel Stern knows that he married a woman who's not a virgin? No. I think he's an extremely active denial about it. Because <laughs> I was wondering this too, right? Like if you're a woman in this time, like people were having sex, people have always been having sex. And as Latour pointed out, people are still having sex. That reference is going to be very exciting for one person out there. And they'll let us know on social and I can't wait. And they're like, I can't believe Alex and Laura didn't get it. <laughs> I know that song because Tanya Harding skated to it at the 1992 Olympics because she is a class act. Oh, I forgot. I know. Yes. Now I know. No, I yeah. it. Okay. But that like, yeah, that in the 50s, like, and in ways that, you know, media of the time doesn't depict. And I love how much we see like the movies and TV people are watching in this movie. Movies inside of movies always make me pretty happy. And, you know, they, they go see a summer place at a certain point. And that's, you know, this wonderful juxtaposition of like, this is what they're being shown about, like the mating rituals that they should be taking part in. And really, like they're living in a world that's pretty divorced from that. And maybe for etiquette's sake, you have to pretend that that's what you're doing, but that like, yeah, what do you do as a woman who would like to get married, but is also like sleeping around because she wants to? I mean, it's my understanding of the 50s and no, I wasn't there, but that there was this really black line, this demarcation between the girls who did and the girls who didn't. Mm -hmm. And the girls who got away with having sex were the ones who ended up marrying their high school boyfriends. But if any girl became known as someone who had sex outside of marriage with someone who wasn't her fiance, that was pretty scandalous. And we have to think that somehow we have to believe that the Mickey Rourke character didn't tell his friends. Yeah. Hmm. Which is shocking. Right. Would be shocking if that was the case. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, but at the same time, it's got to be something that's never talked about. I mean, even the elliptical way that Ellen Barkin brings it up in conversation lets you know how incredibly loaded this is. Mickey Rourke literally invites his friends to come watch him have sex. Mm -hmm. What if they fall out of the closet and their dicks get into him by accident? <laughs> what do you mean? Wouldn't that be nice? What do you make of this of this like red herring that we get where the setup is to, to all of these points at once? The setup is Mickey Rourke says that he's going to have sex with this woman. They have a bet. There needs to be proof. The proof will be that Kevin Bacon is going to be there to see it happen in the closet. Daniel Stern is suddenly involved with Kevin Bacon. And we think that the plan has pivoted because Mickey Rourke is taking... Ellen Barkin up to the room now plans have changed and we think that it's going to be revealed to Daniel Stern like that's the tension yeah and then it kind of like pivots and that's proof to Ellen Barkin that Mickey Rourke's a nice guy <laughs> that unexpected gallantry of course the person who saves the Mickey Rourke character in this movie is Michael Tucker and Michael Tucker is probably known to most people from LA Law mm. he plays a character named Bagel that you see in the diner <laughs> yes. mm -hmm. and he pays off Mickey Rourke's gambling debt, which is what saves him. Uh, Michael Tucker is a Baltimorean and he has a genuine Baltimore accent and he actually dials it back a little bit in this movie. So yeah, it is, we're expected to believe that Boogie is an incredibly gallant person. <laughs> you know, he, he literally rides up on horseback to win a woman's <laughs> heart, but it doesn't really hang together. And the person who is gallant is actually the Tim Daly character mm. who never tells anyone that he had sex 
with this friend hmm. and he's determined to protect that knowledge. You know, he, you know, he tells the Gutenberg character, no, no, we never did when there's actually this pregnancy scare going on. Yeah. And I, I like how that plot elapses where she's like, I'm not in love with you. Like we're good friends and we've had sex, but that's not the same thing as love. Yeah. And, and, and apparently I didn't catch that, catch it until this watching her. I guess I just keep forgetting it. She must be planning to give the baby up for adoption because she literally says, I'm not talking about an abortion. Yeah. So that would seem mm. to, so she's just going to go away for a few months and take a leave of absence from her job and then come back and pretend like it never happened, I guess. But yeah, I mean, to make a prom mom connection inevitably, like, and I talked about this in the prom mom episode we did way back when, like for a while I had a Google news alert set for dead baby found. Um, and you would be amazed at how many like little stories in you would not be amazed, Laura, I don't think, but everybody else would be. <laughs> no, I get it because people think this has only happened like once or twice. Yeah. They think it's only about the notorious cases that were incredibly public and publicized. Yeah. And if you really start digging into newspaper archives, there's just, you know, teenage girl had baby at home in New Jersey. Teenage girl has baby in bathroom on school. I mean, it's just going on all the time. Yeah. And, you know, and I think going on this is I don't have data in front of me, but it just kind of makes sense. Right. Going on to a greater extent now for obvious reasons. And it feels like, yeah, that like the way we legislate is based on this idea that like if a 15 year old girl you know, and you don't have to be that young to exhibit this behavior. But as a for instance, if a 15 year old girl gets pregnant and abortion is not available and she's been, you know, taught by the laws of her state and her country that what, you know, contemplating getting one is very evil of her, then like there's this fantasy politically and religiously that like she will just, you know, pull herself up by her little Skechers bootstraps or whatever they're wearing these days and like become a mother or give the baby away, which is not for many people an easy thing to do or even something that feels conceivable of doing once you've carried a baby to term. And so the fantasy is like, well, she'll have to she'll have to produce a healthy baby and and she has no choice. And it's like, or she can dissociate for nine months and then stuff it in a garbage bag. And that's, you know, this is a, a behavior that humans very consistently exhibit and we can't ignore that. Hmm. So anyway, that's what Diner is about. Well, it, I mean, it is. It, it is. It, it is. Yeah, it is. Because yeah. it's also just like there is not a place for your experience. Like that's not what we're dealing with. We're talking about records. Yeah. We're talking about having sufficient sports knowledge to be lucky to not be cast out alone for the rest of your life. Yeah. Which is said jokingly by... Paul Reiser at the end where he's given the opportunity to do stand up at the wedding. Thank God. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's about this is such a man's world. It is overwhelming. Yeah. And it, and that continues to be so true, you know, and the, the especially within, you know, it feels like there's a big overlap with incel culture where it's like men are like, if only a girl were boys, to be clear, more than men, if only a girl would ever show an interest in the things I like. And then a girl does. And they're like, not like that. <laughs> I just realized there's this great meta through line from Diner to Ten Men, which was the next Barry Levinson, Baltimore mm. memory film. 
Oh, and by the way, when I said earlier that the film about the guy from the strip club was Avalon, it's actually Liberty Heights. Avalon is a different Levinson film. Oh, I remember seeing Liberty yeah. Heights when I was too young for it. That was a fun one. <laughs> but so in Tin Men, the salesmen who gather in a diner will talk about the fact that clearly the men of the Ponderosa are gay. Like everybody's the same age. The father and the three sons <laughs> all seem to be within about 10 years of each other. And there are no women around ever. And so it's, you know, they're like, these guys are their own version of the, of the men of the Ponderosa <laughs> with no women really having a leading role. And they're just all together all the time. Yeah. And this, I don't know that there's, I, what we kind of been talking about this whole time is this sort of weird thing in American culture where like, Men are obsessed with each other. They want to be together. They want to look at each other's bodies. Adolescent boys, I think, masturbate together much more frequently than adolescent girls do. I never got invited to do that, although I sure was hoping for it. And it happens so often that when it does happen and you're young, like no one told you it was coming. So it's shocking. <laughs> you're like, oh, we're, uh, we're doing OK. Well, that doesn't sound good. Yeah. You're like, oh, this is a real surprise to me. They could get into it in health class. But but yeah, this this thing of like that men are just they love each other, you know, and they're obsessed with each other and they they want, you know, love and, and care and affection from each other on some level. And they should get that. Like, why? Why can't they just have that? Two bros sitting in a hot tub five feet apart because they're not gay. <laughs> and then there's like this idea, you know, that's very present in this movie of like. At a certain point, you must put away childish things. And, you know, and they get into this explicitly that like you get married and then you are on this train pulling you faster and faster away from your friends. Yes. And you can't just go hang out at the diner all night. You got to have kids, you know, and you're a dad and your career is developing. And this idea that like, you know, that these guys who I <laughs> am very annoyed by, like I get... I feel the tragedy that they're experiencing. And it reminds me actually a lot of Little Women, which I wonder if that's what's like a version of little women is getting excerpted in that tv store oh yeah that's right right and that like you know in in my 90s little women that i grew up with we have winona Ryder. when her oldest sister gets married the first mark sister gets married she's like why must childhood be over right. you know and this feeling that boys and girls both have of like oh my God, adulthood is coming and we're going to be separated from each other and we're losing, you know, potentially the only intimacy that we have access to. Well, and before adolescence, like, you know, I mean, arguably, if you look at Sarah's or my life, like we live like 21 year olds did in the 1980s for the most part, by, by way of how tethered <laughs> we are to responsibilities. Uh, less responsible because as a 21 year old in the 80s would have an answering machine with messages on it that they would listen to every day. <laughs> Absolutely. But you said earlier that about Tim Daly being our audience proxy. I think this the most significant thing that we're watching is like, that time when when people would go home from college and see their friends in between the very end of their childhood and starting their life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's such a specific and was once such a finite period of time. Yeah. That it's like an interesting magical moment to be able to to eavesdrop in on with these guys as they as they endeavor upon it. And then it's said explicitly several times with regard to in in the again the Paul Reiser stand up at the end that like they're losing Eddie. They're losing him to the marriage. Yeah. Yeah. But the fact is, I think this gang is one marriage away from breaking up. Mm. They've survived Daniel Stern being married. 
they're going to survive Gutenberg being married because you can just tell from his character in the movie that he's going to continue to hang out at the diner unless mm-hmm. his wife proves to be stronger than we realize. One guy's going to, that's going to be the tipping point. And that's why mm-hmm. the bouquet ends up on the table in front of the guys because one of those guys is going to be the next person to get married. Right. And then they're done. Yeah. They're done. That's the end of the group. So they're, we're catching them at this one moment in time. They got a little more diner time left. And then it's just going to be impossible. They're going to be kids. Everyone's going to be married. Even the Fenwick Kevin Bacon character will end up married to some poor, long-suffering woman. Yeah. Oh, my God. And several long-suffering women, I think. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The first of many long-suffering women. Yeah. (laughs) This movie in Stand By Me would be a really great double feature in my imaginary movie theater that I want to own. Oh, yeah. Right? I start tearing up just thinking about the Richard Dreyfuss voiceover in Stand By Me when he tells you who was the man who was stabbed in the fast food restaurant. Oh, my God. Yeah. And it's that I know we talked about it when we covered this movie, but it's that thing of like a character in a movie doing a voiceover that takes you into the future while you're watching the past still happen. You know, you're watching River Phoenix and being told what happens to him as a grown up. And there's something about that that feels like the way time actually functions in our lives. Like we're always always standing in these like folds of time where like often in that moment when you're kind of you know, with your friends in the diner, like you're experiencing the past, you're experiencing the future rushing at you, that that feels like a way that film can express how we actually experience time. Um, And both these movies do that really well. Yeah, agreed. The thing that stood out to me about, and this is just rehashing stuff that we've already said, but the thing that stood out to me about Stern talking about the the pitfalls of marriage is that she expects you to find new friends mm-hmm. and it's so such an interesting line considering his approach is to shoehorn her into all of his existing friend groups and like what he's suggesting suggests that like maybe he is expected to occasionally show up to stuff for like her friends and he's just like un- right. unable to do that in a real way That would be terrible. Also, by the way, Daniel Stern can simply implement a system where they get like a little like a library catalog card and his beautiful wife can put it wherever she took a record out of so she can then just like remember where it came from and put it back. I realize it's not about that, but like, come on. (laughs) What is more toxic masculinity than a man screaming at you to value this incredibly arcane knowledge that he has come by. (laughs) That he's defined by. That's like the whole thing somehow. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, that's just day-to-day life. You know, that's just, you go outside and there's going to be a guy who wants you to care so much about what he knows. And then if she actually learned more about his records than he knew, he would kill himself. Oh, yeah. Or her. Or both. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, looking at my sense of like both admiration and irritation with this movie, it's like it's not that there's anything wrong with its ability to depict what's happening. It's just I'm like bothered by what has always been happening in terms of, mm. you know, sex and, and gender and everything. And, you know, it it feels like the antidote to that is like to make these movies and then to make all the other movies, you know, like I can't really think of movies you know, just to talk about my experience uh, along with everybody else's, like about women doing, you know, this little. (laughs) 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 
And I would just I would love more movies about people who are not cis men and who live in a universe where cis men like or cis straight men like barely register. They're like kind of there. They're at the periphery. Nobody really cares. They're not affecting things because that's sort of what everyone else has been treated to, you know, and I love The Godfather. I love Ocean's Eleven. I love the thing. I love these movies about men where everybody else does not exist. But then we need more movies where men don't exist. <laughs> I mean, what would an all female the thing look like? I would actually I would sincerely like to see it. They would get it under control they in about <laughs> half an hour, I honestly think. <laughs> you know what women would do? They wouldn't dig up that spaceship. <laughs> Yeah, that's a mistake. <laughs> I would love that so They'd much. be like, weird. Let's leave that where we found it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm curious about you seeing this for the first time, uh, Laura, because it feels like this. It feels like this movie, even though it's like doing some stuff that was already sort of existing through like 70s indie stuff, like or through 70s, like new Hollywood stuff. It was doing that, but it also feels like a real outlier for the kinds of movies that came out through the whole of the 80s. Yeah, what was coming out in, I guess actually The Thing came out in 82, yes, didn't it? it? That was a colossal failure at the time. In 1981, 1982, I was actually the backup film critic at the Waco Tribune Herald, and I saw a lot of movies. I think there were a lot of really forgettable early 80s films and some really great ones. I mean, obviously, we still watch E.T. The Thing was you know, totally misunderstood by me. I mean, so I can see myself sitting in a theater in Waco, Texas. I'm with my friends. The theater is probably, you know, not even half full for this movie called Diner that no one knows anything about. And it was just such a pleasure and revelation to be sitting in a movie that was kind of talky and funny. Mm. And I mean, at that time, the only really talky movies were made by Woody Allen. Yeah, yeah. You know, we don't know all want to listen to him talking. <laughs> yeah. um, but just the idea that there could be these, you know, these funny conversations, it felt relatable. You, Everybody knows all of these guys. Mm-hmm. Every one of these guys is a type that we've all known. And I think, though, looking back, I mean, it was over 40 years ago. The movie just felt incredibly fresh. Mm hmm. And it was nice that the stakes were small yeah, and that it wasn't trying to be anything more than it was. Yeah. And I can kind of putting it in that context, it does feel like I cannot think, you know, and I wasn't there, but I cannot think of another movie from this you know, period in time that is so focused on mimicking the rhythms of everyday life, you know, and just how it or, you know, a movie that was as successful as this was and managed to find an audience and sort of continue to be culturally relevant for that reason like a movie that didn't have to be rediscovered but was like fully discovered at the time it came out and it does feel like that's what we you know the kind of experimental movies of the early to mid 70s that was one of the things they did so well it's like just it's men talking for such a long time just like talking to each other And those are the best scenes. Talking yeah. at and over each other. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, this is, this is Levinson's first film as a director. And if you look at Levinson's career, he made 
these four Baltimore movies that I can think of. And then he made some really big movies and I think won an Oscar. And Yeah, he made Rain Man. He made Rain Man. He, he made Disclosure, Good Morning Vietnam. Yeah, it's crazy. And then there's Avalon and Liberty Heights. Avalon and Liberty Heights both have, you know, flaws. But they're like, you could watch those four movies and respect the director who made them and the writing that went into them. And you feel like this is someone who's got a point of view who's trying to do something. And when I look at, the rest of Levinson's career, those big Hollywood movies he made, I think they're just kind of airless. You know, they're just, they're fine. They're well-made. I understand why people liked them, but I never, like, like, you know, imagine yourself on a plane with a video system that has five movies and one of them is Good Morning Viet. I, I just, I can't imagine why you'd want to go back to that movie. And I love Robin Williams. Would you go back to Wag the Dog? I would. I really liked Wag the Dog, too. although I haven't seen it since college. You know what? I never saw it. And I don't know how I didn't see it. I should watch it. It's nice and small. So it's the most indie of his big movies in sensibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, Laura Lippman, uh, thank you, first and foremost, for bringing us Diner. And I am curious to know, we know Eddie has a father, but who, Laura Lippman, is the daddy of Diner? I say it's got to be Bagel, played by Michael Tucker, because he bails out Boogie. And that's the most dad thing, you know, a dad can dad. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like Sting in Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, excellent. Just an obvious comparison. A movie I think not enough people are talking about these days. Yeah. I haven't thought about that movie for at least 20 years. <laughs> Um, well, I'm going to say uh, we mentioned her earlier, unseen hero of this movie, casting director Ellen Shenwith. She would go on to cast so many movies as beautifully as she cast Diner. Beautiful. Agreed. The woman in Diner, truly. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah Marshall. I The daddy is the diner. And I was complaining to you, Alex, before I've complained to many people at different times that Portland, Oregon, my hometown, has many things and is lacking many things. And one of the things I really think would help us is a diner culture. We do not have diners in that town. There's, you know, a couple of spots that kind of scratch that itch. My father's place is one of them. It's a really, that's a fabulous um, institution. But like, I think you can't have a healthy city without a big shiny toaster for utes to hang out in. And uh, I think that's what we're missing. I think we got to get the let out and do something about it. Absolutely. I hope we, I hope you all have a nice time at a diner very soon. <laughs> all right, everybody, that's it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thanks to Laura Lippman for joining us. Read Laura's books. Read Prom Mom. Read all the other ones. We love Laura Lippman. Thanks to Miranda Zickler, who produced and edited this episode. Check out our conversation with Miranda about In Just Like That later on uh, for all you Apple podcast and uh, Patreon supporters. Thanks to our founding uh, oversight producer, Carolyn Kendrick. We love and appreciate you, Carolyn. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make these episodes sound so sweet. Thanks to you for finding us on social media, wherever we may be and <laughs> saying hello. Uh, we're on we're on a lot of them. I'm also on TikTok and occasionally I do stuff about the show, although I haven't updated that in a minute and I'm sure I will uh, dive back in soon. 
Next week, we're going to talk about Bad Santa. It's just Sarah and me. It's a little, it's an intimate chat about Bad Santa. That's it. Thanks for being here. We appreciate you. And don't forget that you, my friend, are good. Good.